Our passage today is found on page 944, Romans 8, 28 through 30. Romans 8, 28 through 30. Certainly verse 28 is one of the most well-known passages or verses in, the, in Scripture. And we're going to try to give it some extra attention today. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose... For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Let us pray. O Lord, open our hearts to receive this precious word that you have given us to be nourished by it and to live by it by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You're going to be receiving a, another sheet of paper. I'm drowning you in paper today. I promise you it won't happen every week. Um, but we're going to begin with little lead-in to Romans 8.28 that I hope will give you the context. Most of my life, well, at least a good part of my life, I had no idea what came before Romans 8.28 and why it's there, what its purpose is. And so hopefully this can help a bit. As they're distributing that, let me give you a little illustration to help us think in this direction. This is Peanuts. This, I have a Peanuts calendar and every day a new Peanuts and this was August 29th and I thought I'm going to remember that one. So this girl and boy, they're, they're none of the main characters, but a girl is turned toward a boy uh, in class and she says, we're supposed to draw each other's face. So she's staring at him, you know, and, and he's doing this with his hand. He says, well, turn your head. I can only draw a side view face. So then she's given him a side view, but she's just got the most noble, dignified look on her face. She says, I'm trying to have an expression of someone looking to the future with hope. And he says, that's all right. I'm just drawing your ear. <laughs> so I just love that slam on this, just giving this for all posterity. I want this look. I'm just drawing your ear. She's basically, you know, you can have all <clears throat> he's saying, you can have the look of hope all you want. It's just your ear. But it could be fair to say, brothers and sisters, that God wants to put a look of hope on every face of every believer in all circumstances at all times. He wants you not just to have the look of hope, but have the heart of hope. This is a major, critical aspect of his salvation. In fact, to be rescued means that you've now fixed your hope 
completely in his care now and forever. We read just last week from Romans 8.24, in this hope we were saved. It's this atmosphere, this calling uh, in which we were saved. And I love 2 Thessalonians 2.14 because it gets, it, it zeroes in on this. To this he called you through our gospel so that, why did he call you to himself through our gospel? So that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the whole purpose of calling you to Christ is ultimately that you might obtain the glory of Christ. That is, that you would share in the very glory of his humanity as he now exists in that glory in his humanity. And Romans 8.28 is one of the most hope-filled verses in the Bible. So I want you to look at this sheet that was just handed out. We won't spend long on it, but hopefully it can be something you refer to. We have started in Romans 8.14, and notice the key words. Right as he talks to them about being adopted as sons, and remember, sons is a title. It includes all men and women, boys and girls. He says, you are heirs, and you will be glorified with him. Right at the outset of talking about sonship, he must talk about your future glory. And then the next verse, he speaks of the glory to be revealed to us. In the next verse, the revealing of the sons of God, that is the unveiling of that glory. And then in verse 21, the freedom of the glory of the sons of God, that is creation is waiting for the freedom of the glory of the sons of God. And then creation groans forward-looking. We groan forward-looking. And we groan for what? Our adoption as sons, which will finally be completed with the redemption of our bodies. So you see that all of this glory has to do with the redemption of our bodies. That is our final resurrection. That's the glory he's speaking about. As Jesus was resurrected into a glorified body, we will be resurrected into a glorified body. Our bodies will be redeemed in that day. And then and only then will our adoption be completed. Only then could you truly say, finally, our adoption is done. Our bodies have been made new. And then he, he talks about hope. And then he talks about the spirit groaning as well. All of these are forward-looking. And I've summarized it there in the middle by the arrow pointing to glory. All of creation, all of our hearts long and ache and groan for and hope in the coming glory. And I would interject this question then. After all this talk, will it really happen? What if this happens? What if that happens? What about all the things that are against us? What about our enemies, physical and spiritual? What about worldwide abuse and oppression in governments and communities and families? What about failures and betrayals among the leaders of the church worldwide? What about division in the church? What about the denial of Christ in historically Christian churches? 
What about health and wealth heresies running rampant in third world countries and in the United States itself? And then it gets personal. What about my parents' divorce? What about my husband's infidelity? What about my learning difficulty? What about my child with terminal disease? What about my mother with dementia? And Paul says, God works all things together so that we will constantly move toward and certainly enter that final glory. You get the feel of this passage, pointing forward to glory and, in, and right there saying, and all things work together toward that final glory. Nothing can stand in the way. Everything advances it. And that's why in the very passage we read, it works together for what? Our final conformity to the image of his son, that is his glory, so that he will just simply be the firstborn among many brothers. Firstborn refers to his resurrection. The first resurrected among many brothers and sisters. We'll all be resurrected with him and we'll all be glorified together. Now, who does he say this is for? And our, our version, unlike New American Standard or NIV, has the correct word order, which I really like. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Now, that can be disconcerting. We sang a song that says a lot. In fact, any time I sing that song, I have to ask myself, is this really how much I love Jesus right now? If I've ever loved him at all, it's right now. That's, that, that examines me, you know. It pierces me. And, and I want to entrust myself to God and say, Oh, Lord, enable me to, to love you in that way. Because you say a mouthful with that, right? And this is, this is serious. It's like all things work together for those who love God. And then the question comes, well, do I love God? Do I, do I really love God? Are things, and so that, that can be disconcerting, and thus the title of this sermon, Anatomy of Love. And I think we can be encouraged in our love for God by learning more or reviewing, for many of us, how love works in the Bible and in our lives. So first of all, the assurance that God loved us long before we loved him. That's the most comforting thing in scripture to me. He loved us long before we loved him. It may not seem it uh, when you first read it, but in verse 29, he's given the reason for, that we're called according to the purpose. What is that purpose? And he begins to explain that purpose. And we'll cover this more in the week or two to follow. But he says, those whom, he begins with this, those whom he foreknew. And I'll review with you what that means in scripture. Adam knew Eve and she conceived. Elkanah knew Hannah and she conceived. God says to Jeremiah, I knew you before I formed you in your mother's womb. And then that's Jeremiah 1.5. And then 
Matthew 7.23 when Jesus is speaking to those who claim that they belong to him and claim that they've ministered in his name, but they've not been at all obedient. They've been rebellious to him. He says, depart from me, I never knew you. Now, Jesus knew about them. That's why he's sending them away, right? He knew every detail of what they did. It's not a matter of knowledge. It's a statement of intimacy. I was never in a loving relationship with you. We weren't intimately related. I didn't know you. It equates to, I didn't love you, and you didn't love me. So when he says he, the only change in the word is for no. It means those whom he set his love upon, he predestined. So election is always based on love. Now, it's not love because of anything in us. In fact, people want to change this to mean those he knew who would believe, and then he picked them. First of all, that's not what the text says, right? He knew who would believe. It says, no, he knew them and predestined them. I liken this to someone going into the Louvre in Paris, and they have these paints with them, kind of undercover, and suppose they're able to do this. You can't get that close, of course, and it's behind glass, but suppose they suddenly pull out their luminescent paints, bright green, pinks, and oranges, and they approach the Mona Lisa and they say, I'm going to fix the Mona Lisa. (laughs) Of course, everybody, no, don't touch the Mona Lisa. But in that way, we like to fix God. We don't like the fact that he set his love on some and predestined them, and so we want to fix him. We want to fix it so, no, he just saw who would believe, and then he picked them. But see, just like luminescent paint, this damages God because then it makes God to be a God who looks ahead to see who the good people are because it's a very good thing to believe in God. It's the center of our morality to trust him. So you're saying God looked ahead. Who's going to trust me? Oh, I'm going to pick. So he picks all the good people, leaves the bad ones behind. He just picks the ones who would trust him. Well, the fact is, none of us will trust him. None of us want God. And if you want to put it that way, that God looks ahead, he would look ahead and say, nobody wants me. All have sinned. All have turned away from me. So, if you think, we're going to be here till four uh, at this rate. But this first thing is so important to realize God loved us before the world began. And you see in these next verses how election is associated with love. Brethren, beloved by the Lord, God has chosen you. See? Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you, or Colossians 3, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, they go together. Or Deuteronomy 4, because he loved your fathers, therefore he chose their descendants after them. By the way, I forgot 
to tell the kids what words to look for, and here they are. Mona Lisa, we already did that one, okay? Two, molten core. Three, heart surgery. Four, Zacchaeus. They're four this time. So Deuteronomy 7 is, is so clear because it says, The Lord did not set his love on you or choose you because you were more in number than on any of the peoples, for you once were the fewest of all peoples, but because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your fathers. Wait a minute. Look at this. He didn't set his love on you because of this. He set his love on you because the Lord loved you. There's no further back. It's like, well, well, tell me. No, he loved you because he loved you. It had nothing to do with you. It was in spite of you. It was in spite of your being against God. It was in spite of your unbelief. It's in spite of all your disobedience and all your evil. In spite of all that, he set his love upon you. You see, that strips us of any earning, any worthiness, <laughs> any way that we can look down at others. We humbly have to say, God has had mercy on us. That's the end of the story. So, God loved us long before we loved him. So, second point. It's obvious God alone initiates love between us and him. Realize we don't love God, but he began to love us or loved us from all eternity. And then he moves toward us in that love and initiates love in our lives, which we would never have done. It's all on God's side. None of it is on our side in terms of this initiative. And so Paul can say in Romans 5, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Trying to see if this is... Maybe it was on mute. Um, While we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for whom? The ungodly. Who else was there to die for? All were ungodly. So we're all ungodly. Christ is dying for us. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And a few verses later, he adds the word enemies. So we're ungodly, we're sinners, we're enemies. That's who we are. And here is Christ dying for us. He initiated the love. He acted toward us. We did not act toward him. And John makes it clear in the next passage. First verse, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. And then notice verse 10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Couldn't be clearer, could it? Was it that we loved God? We didn't. But he revealed his love and manifested his love to us in Christ. And then I'll just 
touch on this last passage. Ephesians 2, in the first three verses, outlines in some terrible detail of the sinful course in life that we lived. Living in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. Paul is saying all of us were this, okay? But verse 4 There's an interruption in our evil. There's an interruption in our rebellion against God. And what is it rooted in? But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Us who clearly didn't love him because we were fixed dead in our trespasses. When it says dead, it means you're fixed absolutely and forever fixed in a sinful pattern of life. But he interrupted your pattern and my pattern. Why? Because of the great love with which he loved us. And he emphasizes it again. Even when we were dead in our trespasses and he made us alive together with Christ, it is by grace that you are saved. And only grace. I would like for you to open your hymnals with me and turn to page 469. I want you to look at it with me. There's several key lines here that, that you and I must be able to confess and believe because this is reality. So well captures biblical truth. How sweet and awesome is the place with Christ within the doors and within the doors of fellowship with him. While everlasting love displays the choicest of her stores. Notice it's everlasting love. He loved us in eternity. Now he's displaying the riches that we have in Christ. While all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast, each of us cries with thankful tongue, Lord, why was I a guest? Brothers and sisters, that must be our heart's cry. Why am I even able to be in fellowship with God? Why? Why would you set your love on me? And it goes on. Why was I made to hear your voice? I wouldn't have heard your voice otherwise. I was made to hear your voice and enter while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come. And you see, the point is, I would have, I would not have come. I would not have believed. But you made me, allowed me to hear your voice. That's the only difference. And then he, again, twas the same love that spread the feast that sweetly drew us in, else we had still refused to taste and perished in our sin. See how the, psalm, the, the writer of this hymnal is recognizing the only reason I'm here is God's grace and love. Otherwise, I would be just like everyone else that's rejected Christ. It's completely his grace to me. And so I just was reading about the core of the earth and how 
the core of the earth is essential for the life to exist on the planet because of all things, this swirling liquid iron basically produces an electric field that covers the earth. Who would have thought, right? That magnetic field is what protects us from the sun so that the sun doesn't destroy us and so that life can flourish in this world. So you want to get to the molten core of your life and your love and your response to God, the molten core which has called you into protection is the love of God. It is the love of God who loved us long before we loved him and initiates love between us and him. Thirdly then, it is by God's saving power that we respond to God's love and love him in return. You already see that in the hymn that we read. I was made to hear your voice. I came instead of staying away and starving. But it's clear here in Deuteronomy, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and that you may live. You and I, you know, heart surgery is a serious thing and it takes place because of a serious condition. Some children are born with heart conditions that require surgery. We had a kind of comical thing happened with a guy in our singles group when I was at Park Cities in Dallas uh, who was marrying a girl a good bit younger than him. He was, she's maybe 15 years younger. But the part we, of course, you're going to razz him, you know, for marrying somebody so young a little bit. Um, But what was so sweet about it was that she had had a heart valve issue that she was born with. She was the longest lasting survivor of that issue at the time and still is alive today. And because she had been in the children's hospital her whole life, as a 23-year-old, she still went to the children's hospital. And that was wonderful to say, so you're marrying a girl that goes to children's hospital, right? But you see, we all, Deuteronomy declares, We all come into this world desperate for heart surgery or we die. And what is the heart surgery? I have to have heart surgery so that I might love God. That's how much I'm born against him. That's how much I'm born rebelling against God. We have need of this spiritual surgery. And so this phrase in Romans 8:28 has a long history behind it, a powerful story behind it. Those who love God have been loved by God and God's initiated love in their heart and he's changed them so that they can love him. And the next passage, uh, I'll just read the last part, the verse 6 explains what happens when this heart surgery takes place. God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shone into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So 
We know the story of creation. There's darkness. God shines into the darkness. And Paul is using that analogy to say, that's how our darkness, the darkness in our heart, the darkness of not loving God, that's how it was changed. God shone the glory of Jesus into our hearts, else we would never have seen it. We would never have seen who he is and longed for him and trusted in him. That's the glory that was shown into our hearts. It's the very glory of God in Christ because he who's seen the Son has seen the Father. And so John can say, we've come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. How do we come to know and believe that love? Because God's shown into our hearts to reveal the glory of God's love for us. And then that love now controls us, as he says in 2 Corinthians 5 next. And he says, he died for all so that we would live for the one who died for us. That's how we live. We have been captivated by the love that God has for us, by the love Christ has for us. And that's what rules our hearts. That's why we love him. Because he has loved us. And Paul says the same thing in Galatians 2. That I live by faith in him because he loved me and he gave himself for me. I think of the whole Bible as this one basic story. Adam and Eve turned against God. And you remember the temptation of the evil one. He said, you will not die because God knows in the day you eat of it, you'll become like him. So he's basically saying, this is a scarecrow. God is holding out on you. God's not letting you into the good stuff. You can't trust this God. You cannot trust this God. You've got to strike out on your own. And we know the results. They didn't trust God. And they disobeyed God. And so that's, that's the center of all of our sin, is that we don't trust God. That's why we don't obey him. Because we don't believe in his goodness for us. We don't believe in the wisdom of following him. We just don't trust him and that's why we don't follow him in every case. So basically we say to God, you are untrustworthy. And then finally in Jesus Christ, God says, oh yes, I am trustworthy. And he reveals to us the love of God in Jesus Christ. I am the kind of God that comes to earth in the flesh and I die in your place for your sin. You can trust me. And that convinces us, that convinces Paul to live by faith in the Son of God. It convinces Paul to be governed by that love and to trust him in all things. So God initiates, uh, God loved us before we ever loved him. He initiates love. And then in his saving power, we respond to that love and we love him in return. And then just briefly to touch on these last things, a further anatomy of love. This is how this love will express itself. It expresses itself as we depend upon him, as we trust him. 
The, the children of Israel were outside the land of Canaan and they wouldn't go in. And notice how God responds in Numbers 14. How long will these people despise me? How long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs I've done among them? You see, when I don't trust him, I despise him. I don't love him. I don't call him good and wonderful and worthy to be obeyed or, or uh, worthy to be trusted. So I urge you, always trust him. Put your life in his hands. And when good comes to you, then acknowledge that this good has come from him. That's a further way that we trust him, that we acknowledge the good that he gives us. And in difficulty, we run to him. We trust what he's doing in our lives. We trust what Christ accomplished on the cross for us. We depend upon him. We admire him and praise him. We cultivate gratitude and praise as these Psalms hold forth. Cultivate the freedom and relief of gratitude. People who live in gratitude and an attitude of praise are the happiest, freest people in the world. And we must work to cultivate this. But we love him when we acknowledge how wonderful he is instead of ignoring him. Maybe start with five minutes concentrated time a day just to admire him for all he is and all he's done. Start there. We love him by giving ourselves up to him as Romans 12:1 says that we present our bodies as a living sacrifice. And then, so it's, I, I love him by not withholding myself, but I love him by saying, you are worthy of my whole life. You're worthy of anything I might give you. You're worthy of my allegiance, my attention, my service, my gifts, my time. You are worthy. I love you. And then it shows itself in our love for others. As you see in these passages, we imitate God by walking in his love. And the last passage, I'll just mention this one. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. You know, God never joins my little hate party against others. I, I, but we all tend to think that, like, I'm against these Christians or those Christians or whatever. But God never joins that. In fact, he says, uh, you must love your brother or you show you don't love me. That's how your love for me manifests itself in your love for one another. Else you don't love me. And we must recognize, as I have had to do so many times in my life, oh, Lord, the reason I'm not caring for this person is I really don't love you as I should. But God brings about that love in our hearts. And he moves us to reveal the Lord Jesus to us. And I want to urge you, if you're not a believer in Christ, to be like Zacchaeus, who 
got in the way of where Jesus was coming, right? He climbed a tree and Jesus was coming and he was in the way of Jesus. And I urge you by getting into God's word and attending anywhere where the word is being discussed and talked about and in your own private time to get into God's word, to get in the way of Jesus and ask for God to reveal in your heart the beauty and glory of Jesus. Lord, shine in my heart that I might see your glory. I didn't know where to start as a kid when this happened. And a good place to start, Luke's, Luke and Acts, the most complete version of Jesus' life and the early church's life. Luke Acts, written by Luke. And then start reading some of these letters from Paul and just ask God to open up your heart that you might see the glory of Jesus, that you as well might say with Paul, the love of Christ governs me. Let us pray. Oh Lord, all things work together for those who love God. And that love, Lord, was begun by your love for us before the world began. And you initiated love into our lives. You worked in our hearts and shone into our hearts so that we could even see your love and respond to your love. Oh, Lord, enable us more and more to feast upon the love of Jesus, to believe in that love, to say along with John, we've come to know and believe the love that God has for us so that we in turn might love others. We love because you first loved us. Lord, manifest your greatness in our lives, we pray for your glory and honor. Amen.